and welcome to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode number 605 for Sunday, October 9th. I'm your guest host, Dave White, and today's topic is Robin Hood. I'll go over some of the books and films and some TV versions of The Hero of Sherwood Forest, and I promise that we'll hear Lieutenant Worf say he is not a merry man. The story of Robin Hood is a familiar one to many people. He lived in Sherwood Forest with his merry men. He had a lady love named Marion. His main enemy was the Sheriff of Nottingham. And the one thing that most people know about Robin Hood is that he took from the rich and gave to the poor. We don't have a whole lot of facts to back this up, so the writers of books and comic books and the directors of films and TV shows have had to fill in the gaps through the years. And because the facts are in short supply, we see many different versions of the story. The first mentions of Robin Hood date to the 15th century, in ballads and fragments of plays. He gets a couple of mentions in Shakespeare, and he features prominently in the famous novel Ivanhoe. This novel by Sir Walter Scott was immensely popular in its day, and continues to be popular to some extent to this day. The main character, Sir Wilfred of Ivanhoe, is the son of a Saxon nobleman living in the time of King Richard I, the Lionheart, so it's the late 12th century here. His name is Wilfred, but he's called Ivanhoe because that's where he's from. And what he really wants is to win the hand of his lady love, Rowena, but her father has other plans. So Ivanhoe goes with King Richard on crusade and becomes a war hero, and Ivanhoe gets back to England, and no Richard. No, King Richard has been kidnapped, and so the support that Ivanhoe had hoped to get isn't there because Richard isn't there to give it. Undeterred, Ivanhoe goes all cloak and dagger and disguises himself in order to take part in a great tournament put on by John, who is here referred to as Prince John. So Ivanhoe shows off his jousting skills and wins the tournament. But it's a three-day tournament, so on he goes, and he wins the second day as well. But he's injured and has to sit out the last day. Who then is to be our hero on day three of Prince John's tournament? Why, Robin of Loxley, of course, and here is where it gets cemented in the consciousness that Robin Hood was Robin of Loxley. Subsequent stories will flesh out this story a great deal. Here in Ivanhoe, however, we have Robin of Loxley and his followers, who just happened to be a happy bunch, so maybe we could call them merry men. And Robin proves to be really good with the bow and arrow. After this, the mysterious Black Knight shows up. No, it's not the Black Knight from Monty Python. This one keeps his limbs. In fact, he keeps his wits about him as well, and proves really good at fighting and leading men. Robin and his men are only too happy to follow the Black Knight into battle, and so you're probably not surprised to discover that the Black Knight is really King Richard. This wouldn't be a story set in the Norman universe without a storming of the castle, and so we have one, and there's lots of rushing around, and the hero wins the day, and, this being a romance novel, he lives happily ever after. Robin of Loxley, meanwhile, gets a big pat on the back from Richard, and off he goes. So, Ivanhoe comes out in 1819, and it's a big hit. Still is in some circles. TV and movies have featured some really famous adaptations of this story. 
After a few silent film versions, the story got into the talking film universe and then into TV. A 1952 film starring Elizabeth Taylor and Joan Fontaine, not to mention Robert Taylor as the title, as the title character, made tons of money and garnered three Oscar nominations. TV got into the act as well, with Roger Moore taking a turn as Ivanhoe back in 1958, Anthony Andrews doing the part in 1982, and Stephen Waddington driving an epic five-hour TV miniseries as late as 1997. And getting back to our hero, the idea of Robin and Richard as crusaders gets codified. More important to our story, however, is the depiction of Robin of Loxley. He is a well-mannered fellow, a fine, upstanding man, a patriot to the cause of the king, in this case Richard, a passionate believer in justice and in people's rights to uphold it, with arms if necessary, an expert marksman with the bow, and an all-around example for people young and old to look up to and want to be. Quite a nice package, really. Robin Hood is also referred to as the Earl of Huntington in some later stories, but the Loxley connection is most familiar, thanks in large part, to Ivanhoe. What about the rest of the characters in the story? Who were Robin's friends and allies? Who were his main enemies? He is a bit of a superhero at times, but he's not a lone wolf superhero. First up in our character study is Little John. Now, here's a guy who's always been there. When you think about Robin Hood, when you ask people on the street what they know about Robin Hood, they say things like, well, he stole from the rich and gave it to the poor, and then they might come up with Maid Marian. Quite often, though, before we get to Maid Marian, we get to the Merry Men. And who's the most famous Merry Man of them all? Little John. The story is so familiar, isn't it? The guy's name is really John Little, except somebody else calls him Little John because of his size, and because of a desire to take him down a peg or two. In the most familiar origin story, Robin himself encounters John Little at a footbridge or some sort of narrow crossing over a river or a deep stream. Robin wants to cross the water at that point, so he doesn't have to go miles down river just to get to the other side. But this big guy is on the bridge saying, None shall pass. Now you might think, in more recent parlance, of Gandalf telling the Balrog, You shall not pass! You might also think of Monty Python's Black Knight telling King Arthur, None shall pass. Well, you might remember that in both cases, those encounters ended badly for the bad guys. In our story here, John Little is not a bad guy, and it doesn't end badly for him. You could argue that it ends slightly badly for Robin, and that he gets embarrassed when he can't best John in a fight, and he gets himself dumped into the water. But that's not a violent ending, and the two men end up being friends and comrades in arms. Just to complete the tale, with the most prevalent of tellings, Robin wants to cross the bridge, and John says, No, you're not getting across this bridge. And Robin says, Don't you know who I am? And John says, I don't care who you are, you're not getting across my bridge. And Robin says, all right, let's fight for it. And so they whip out these giant bits of wood. They're quarter staves, because they're in the forest, you see, where there's a lot of wood just lying around. 
And so they lock quarter staves and struggle a bit, and then John, with his bigger size and strength, overcomes Robin's agility and makes him lose his balance and fall into the water. Whereupon John helps Robin up, and then they're suddenly fast friends. Amazing how much enmity can disappear in an instant. Anyway, that's how the two men meet, and that's how the two men end up together in The Merry Men. And here's a version of that story from the 1950s TV series, The Adventures of Robin Hood. I started to cross first. No, I did. Are you calling me a liar? I'm telling you you're mistaken. Stop your prattling, little man, and step aside. I don't have to. I'm a free man. Are you? Yes, I have as much right here as you have. I was on this bridge first, and I intend to cross first. What do you carry that staff for? Just to make yourself look like a bold fellow, or do you know how to use it? If you had one of your own, I'd be very happy to show you what I know about it. In that case, may I count on you to wait here while I find myself one? You may. I hope you don't mind if it's a bit rough. I don't want to keep you waiting. I don't care if it's covered with spikes. It'll never touch me. one other man your size in my life. He almost broke my back. That ought to have taught you a lesson. It did. I should have been satisfied just to thrash him and leave him there on the tavern floor. Just throwing him out into the road that injured me. Another guy who's been around from the beginning is a guy named Will. 
He is most commonly known as Will Scarlet, but he began his literary life as Will Scathlock. He is usually depicted as headstrong or hot-headed, someone with great passion, feeling he's been done a great wrong and wanting someone else to pay for it. He really has it in for the authorities, usually the local ones, for something that has been done to him personally or done to his family. Some stories have him seeking revenge for violence done to his wife. Will Scarlet is smart enough to realize after a while that he is but one man with few weapons and little money, and the people he wants to fight are many men with lots of weapons and lots of money, so he's only too happy to join up with Robin Hood, seeing a man with a common purpose and, more importantly, an opportunity for strength in numbers. We do have a bit of an origin story for this guy. We don't have any sort of none shall pass, Instead, Will is Robin's cousin. Now, Will knows this, but Robin doesn't, and Will comes looking for Robin in the forest, and of course Robin confronts him and challenges him to a duel, and so the two have a bit of a duel, but then Will shouts out, Hey, I'm your cousin! And the duel stops abruptly, and the two men become fast friends. In most stories, Will has just always been part of the Merry Men. He is commonly portrayed as one of Robin's top lieutenants. If the mission is to rescue and imprison Little John, then Robin consults with Will Scarlet on tactics. As the years go by and our stories multiply, Will Scarlet emerges more and more as a voice of experience and a leader of men. Right, so we talked about how big Little John was. Well, another of the merry men to be big was Friar Tuck. He's commonly depicted as overweight. He's also in many of the earliest adventures. Now, Firechuck was also a fairy man. At least he had that role in the How Did They Meet scenario that is most familiar. So, again, Robin comes to a body of water, and he wants to get across. It's a bit too deep and wide to swim, so the solution that other people use is to go across in a boat. And Tuck, being an enterprising fellow, has a boat that he uses to take people from one side to the other for a price. Although he was a friar, Tuck was kicked out for being a bit too loose with the morals and with the church's money. So he sets himself up at this ford with the boat, and he's doing just fine, and then Robin comes along and says, please take me over. But then he refuses to pay, and then insists that Tuck take him across on his back. And so Tuck does it, except that he drops Robin so hard that he drops his sword, and then insists that Robin take Tuck back across on his back. So Robin does that, except that he drops Tuck into the water halfway across. And then the two guys are going at each other, just like Robin did with Little John. But this time nobody goes back in the drink, and nobody gets the better of anybody else. The two men just decide to stop and become best mates. Later stories have played Tuck for a laugh. He's a big guy, so he's not much of a fighter because he's out of breath after a while, so he's a candidate for comic relief. So Robin is shooting arrows or wielding a sword, and Little John and Will Scarlet are swinging a big stick or shooting arrows, and Tuck is doing things like bopping the bad guys over the head with a flower pot, because that's funny. And you can bet that he has an impish smile on his face, and maybe a shrug. We have this tradition of the miller, 
who is a friend to Robin, or an uncle to Robin, or at least a respected member of the community of Loxley, or some other nearby place. We don't know much more about the Miller. We do know a lot more about Much, the Miller's son. It's a bit of an odd name, really, compared to names like Robin and John and Will, but that's his name, Much, M-U-C-H. The most common story is that Much is caught poaching a deer, which is against the law. Because of Much's youth, we assume that Much isn't the one who killed the deer, but he could have. Either way, Much is caught red-handed with a deer in the king's forest by the king's men, and he's marked for punishment. Robin rescues Much, and they escape. Much naturally follows Robin into the forest because Much knows that he is now an outlaw, and so that is how Much becomes one of the merry men. We also have this guy named Alan Adale. He's rather handy with his voice and with a harp, and this is the image we most commonly have of Alan Adale. Now, I suppose we shouldn't stop to think too much about how this guy can afford to have a nice-sounding harp to tote around with him in the forest. Unlike Little John, about whom absolutely no tales wax lyrical over his harp-playing prowess, Alan Adale is known for musical talent, and so it's entirely likely that he either got the harp from someone else or had it given to him by one of the Merry Men. Either way, he's one of the Merry Men down through the years. Then we have Marion. In all of the stories about Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest, we consistently have mention of only one woman. It seems a bit odd, but that's what we have. Marion does not appear in the earliest ballads, although it could be one of those things that have been true except we didn't know it yet. But from the earliest, Marion has been seen as a love interest for Robin. She is most commonly called Maid Marion, and this is to emphasize her status as an unmarried young woman. She doesn't have a husband, she doesn't own property, and she doesn't really have much freedom. She is rather one-dimensional in our stories until the advent of film and television. The most famous enemy of our Robin Hood is the Sheriff of Nottingham, and with very few exceptions, we don't know his name. Some TV shows give him a name, but we don't have common agreement on that, and in most stories we don't have a name at all. He is simply the sheriff. Now just a word here on the word sheriff. So it's an evolution of two words, shire and reeve. The shire was the county or the municipality in which people lived, and the reeve was the tax collector. So the shire reeve was the county tax collector. And somewhere along the way, as often happens with words in English, Shire Reeve became Sheriff. So he's the tax collector. You can see why people didn't exactly like him. Next up in our character study is Guy of Gisborne. He is also referred to in various ways, as Sir Guy, as Gisborne, as just plain Guy. Now, Gisborne is more than 80 miles from Nottingham, so it's not close, especially in those days when travel was largely on foot. But this is the guy that we have as Robin's enemy when that enemy is not the Sheriff of Nottingham. Sometimes it's both. For the most part, Guy of Gisborne seems a bit one-dimensional. He's a tough guy, he is sometimes the second in charge to the Sheriff, 
He's a soldier, a bit of a brute, and more than a bit of a lout. The earliest Robin Hood ballads were violent, and both Guy and the Sheriff suffered death at the hands of Robin or Little John. In our later tales, however, and especially in TV and the movies, the Sheriff and Guy of Gisborne get played for fools more often than they get injured by Robin and company. So we had Ivanhoe coming out in the early 19th century. In the late 19th century, we got the American author Howard Pyle, with a book called The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood of Great Renown in Nottinghamshire. It took the publishing world by storm. Everybody had a copy of this thing, and sometimes two copies. And this is how many Americans discover Robin Hood to this day. You can still very easily get a copy of Howard Pyle's book. He even did the illustrations. With the advent of the motion picture came a new realm of entertainment for Robin Hood, we had a couple of short silent films as early as 1908. Those films are lost to us now. The earliest surviving film was a 1912 film with just his name as the title. This film has been restored and features Guy of Gisborne as a rival to Marion. The fame of Robin Hood in the movies really took off in 1922 with a rip-roaring silent action extravaganza starring Douglas Fairbanks Sr. This was a full-length feature that was, at the time, the most expensive movie yet made. The Robin Hood in this feature film was a swashbuckling outlaw who starts out as the Earl of Huntington, a man who is afraid of women. Once he meets Marion, however, he conquers his fear of the fairer sex. We are on familiar ground with this film. Robin goes with Richard on crusade and returns, at the behest of Marion, to protest the policies and actions of Prince John. Robin has to fight for what is right, as well as having to fight for his woman, and it all ends happily enough. This film was a great success. If Douglas Fairbanks was the man who started it all off, Errol Flynn is probably the man who finished it all off. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Robin Hood film in the 20th or 21st century that is not based on Errol Flynn's portrayal, and his film came out way back in 1938. Now, what makes this film so great? Mostly, it's Flynn himself. Already a larger-than-life actor, he puts full vigor into his portrayal of Robin Hood, and the result is one of the silver screen's most indelible performances. He's good with an arrow. He's good with a sword. He's good with a witty line. He's good with the ladies. He's an inspiration for other men. His well-known persona as a devil-may-care swashbuckler is what makes this film, what sets it apart from other films of its era, even exceeding Douglas Fairbanks. It's what makes it the blueprint for every Robin Hood film that followed. Our hero in this film is introduced as Sir Robin of Loxley, so there's that Loxley connection again. Errol Flynn's version was a standout film in our genre. We had several more adaptations of the story in the 1950s and the 1960s on TV and on the silver screen. And then, in the 1970s, we got the Fox. So it's the 1970s, and Walt Disney Studios want to make a Robin Hood movie. Well, that's not entirely true. They want to make a movie version of the tales of Reynard the Fox. Well, who is that? 
Well, Reynard the Fox was a trickster character who appeared in a large collection of French tales in the Middle Ages. And he is popular to this day. Reynard is huge. He eventually becomes so popular that his name becomes the French word for fox. Reynard was a cunning character, a peasant rejecting authority figures, a hero to the poor, the downtrodden, the unrepresented. He was a bit dodgy on his morals and ethics. He was also just plain fun. So we have Reynard as an anti-authority figure. In the Reynard stories, the authority figures are made to look foolish. Reynard is renowned for his cunning, not his brute strength, and these are all elements associated with Robin Hood, so we can see a bit of a connection there. And this is what the Disney stable had in mind in the late 60s and early 70s. But the more they read of the Reynard stories, the more unsavory elements they found. Early Robin Hood ballads had violent episodes, so did the Reynard stories. But Disney stripped up all the violence and gave us an animated film that featured animals as characters. Prince John, the erstwhile king, is a lion. He's not very noble, though. He, he's rather a coward, a bit like the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. The Sheriff of Nottingham is a wolf, echoing Reynard's chief villain, Isengrim. Alan Adale is a rooster, echoing the character of Chanticleer, the rooster from the Reynard stories. Friar Tuck is a badger, echoing the character of Grimbent in the Reynard stories. Little John is a bear. And the sheriff's chief henchman is not Guy of Gisborne, but Sir Hiss, a snake. We do have Marion in this film as a fox, echoing the character of Reynard's wife, Hermeline. Marion doesn't have much to do in the film, however. There's a bit of country and western going on here, too. Voicing Alan Adale was the famous Roger Miller, who was known for his hit King of the Road. He sings a couple of songs in the movie. Some other really famous actors, Peter Ustinov was Prince John, Phil Harris was Little John. Phil Harris was also the voice of Baloo the Bear in The Jungle Book, which came out a few years before Robin Hood so he sort of cornered the market on voicing a bear. One last note on characters, King Richard shows up, and he is a lion, too. Well, he and John are brothers. But Prince John didn't have much of a mane, whereas Richard the Lionheart has a great big mane. He's the main man, so to speak. And in an interesting twist, Peter Ustinov, who was the voice of Prince John, also voiced King Richard. In terms of plot, much is familiar in this Disney animated film, if you accept that our characters are animals. But this is a really, really good, fun film. The Disney film, quite understandably, was aimed at a young market. At the other end of the spectrum was a 1976 picture called Robin and Marion. The twist here is that they are at the end of their lives. Both have survived their various trials and travails, together and apart, and they are contemplating their last days on the planet. The movie features the wonderfully charismatic pair of Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn. Now, both of these actors are perfectly wonderful in many other films, but they are together in this film a great combination of talent, whimsy, and a kind of bittersweet nostalgia. They also have more than a few funny scenes. Robin and Marion is a wonderful film.
with more than a few comments about missed opportunities. It was a bit of an allegory for the Vietnam War, which had ended just a year before. Robin is ostensibly talking about the horrible things that he did on Crusade, but the words he uses and the scenes he describes sound very much like things that occurred in Southeast Asia in the early 1970s. So listen for that in this clip from the film. What will you do now? Fight the sheriff? More corpses? I'm too sick of it. On the 12th of July, 1191, the mighty fortress of Bajaka fell to Richard, his one great victory in the Holy Land. He was sick in bed and never struck a blow. And on the 20th of August, John and I were standing on the plain outside of the city, watching, while every Muslim left alive was marched out in chains. King Richard spared the richest for ransoming, took the strong for slaves, and he took the children, all the children, and had them chopped apart. When that was done, he had the mothers killed. When they were all dead, 3,000 bodies on the plain, he had them all opened up so their guts could be explored for gold and precious stones. Our churchmen on the scene, and there were many, took it for a triumph. One bishop put on his mitre and led us all in prayer. You ask me if I'm sick of it. Then. He was my king. The most innovative portrayal of Robin Hood on television was Robin of Sherwood, a British production in the early 1980s that emphasized Celtic traditions and featured some fantastic feature music by the musical group Clanad. Here's a sampling of their music from the series.
Overall, this is a great, great series. It's, his, it's as historically accurate as we understand our story to be. It features lush historical settings and well-realized historical characters and some really good acting as well. We had all of the familiar characters. We also had an important addition, a Saracen named Nazir. He joined the Merry Men and they allowed him to join. They didn't have any arguments about religion, and that idea is important for what comes later. Anyway, this was a great series. Now, we often follow Robin and his group through a series of adventures in a movie, but that's over in a couple of hours, and what is on screen is all about the plot and the action, and if you're telling the story of Robin Hood, then you have to cover things like the archery tournament, and the early battle meetings with Little John and Friar Tuck, and you have to cover the romance with Marion, and you have to set up the sheriff and Gisborne as bad guys and then show them being defeated, and maybe you even throw in a scene or two with Prince John or even King Richard. And when you do all of that, you leave very little time to show what life was like from day to day in Sherwood Forest and in the surrounding countryside. This series does a really good job of showing the fine details of the forest. How the merry men eked out a poor man's existence, always on the run, and of what life was like for the people who lived in the nearby villages, being oppressed by power-hungry villains like the Sheriff of Nottingham. You can do that sort of thing when you have hours and hours of TV time, and this series does that really well. This show was one of the first depictions of the Robin Hood story to feature magic. We see an evil sorcerer and a magic arrow and some very famous magic swords. We get other references to magic and people are accused of witchcraft. It all fits with the mood. Okay, so we got a trio of high-profile Robin Hood films in the early 1990s. One had mega star power. One was more of a serious look at the story, and one played the story for laughs. 
1991, we got not one, but two films featuring our hooded hero. The much less well-known version starred Patrick Bergen as Robin Hood and Uma Thurman as Marion. And if you asked a lot of critics and fans of the genre, you'd probably find broad agreement that, on balance, this was the better of the two films released that year. This film is also very much about Marion. Here, she is a headstrong woman about to be forced into an arranged marriage. When she witnesses Robin escaping from a castle, she follows him into the woods disguised as a boy. She is eventually found out, and hilarity ensues. Near the end, Marion is about to be forcibly married to one of the bad guys, and Robin and his men resolve to stop the proceedings. How does it end? Well, see the film for yourself to find out. It is definitely worth it. Right, it's time for Kevin Costner. So, also in 1991, we got the film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Now, we had a 1948 film called Prince of Thieves, based on an 1872 manuscript by Alexander Dumas, the guy who wrote The Three Musketeers. This is not really that film or that book. This Costner film was an update for Our Times when Our Times were the 1990s. So Kevin Costner, sporting a very bad English accent, is Robin Hood. A lot of the press at the time the movie came out was about Costner's accent. His agent obviously didn't do enough in this regard. Okay, the guy's from California. He doesn't have much of an accent. Well, much more than what sounds like a plain-spoken American accent anyway. And he did give it a go in this film, trying to sound like an Englishman. But it didn't really work, and he shouldn't have really bothered. In fact, in some scenes, he didn't. He sounds just like himself. I know it's a hard thing, this American playing an Englishman. We're really bad with the accents. It's much easier for English people to put on American accents for some reason. Anyway, if you can get past that, this film is rather enjoyable. And a lot of people got past it because this film made a lot of money. So we have a story that starts out as familiar. Robin has gone on crusade with Richard. Robin is imprisoned. He breaks out with the help of a moor named Azim. We have a bit of a departure in this film in the form of the witch Mortiana, and she causes all kinds of trouble for Robin and for the sheriff. And let's talk about the sheriff for a bit. In this film, Alan Rickman is the sheriff. Now, we lost Alan Rickman this year. He was a brilliant actor. You'll remember that his first starring role was as Hans Gruber in Die Hard. His most famous starring role in the past decade was as Professor Severus Snape in the Harry Potter movies. He was also Colonel Brandon in the Oscar-winning Sense and Sensibility. Brilliant stuff all. Well, Rickman is riveting in this film. He plays the part with such panache that you can't take your eyes off him. Well, listen for yourself.
begins. Why a spoon, cousin? Why not an axe? Because it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. I want this brigand found. Starve them out. Slaughter them. No. Take their livestock. I want Loxley's own people fighting to bring his head in. Well, perhaps we could create a name for him. Something to drive fear into the hearts of the populace, maybe. Loxley the Lethal or Reeking Robin. Whatever. I want him dead by the next full moon, before the barons come back. Now so. Keep the stitches small. And call off Christmas. Okay, so some other very famous people in this movie. Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio was Marion. Christian Slater was Will Scarlet. And playing Azim, the Moor, was Morgan Freeman. As with every other Morgan Freeman character, this one has grace and gravitas. Speaking of such things, King Richard does reappear in this one. He's played by Sean Connery. This film had a lot of advertising tied to it. You could get Prince of Thieves action figures and a related video game for Nintendo and Game Boy. The theme song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, by Brian Adams, got an Oscar nomination. Yes, they could have made a better movie, perhaps with other actors, but that's the movie that we have, and enough of this film is worth watching that I would still recommend it overall. Nowhere near the stratosphere in star power or earning potential, but still laugh-out-loud funny was a 1993 Mel Brooks vehicle called Robin Hood Men in Tights. Brooks himself appeared in the film as a rabbi, and that's just one of the running jokes throughout the film. Now, many of you will be familiar with Mel Brooks, the satirist and genius behind such classic comedies as Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles, 
both send-ups of other films and genres. The humor is all over the place in its targets and its phrasing, and some of the jokes make no sense if you have not seen the movies that they're skewering. Playing the lead role with an utmost matter of deadpan is Carrie Elwes, whom you might remember from The Princess Bride. So, in the film, Robin escapes from prison in the Holy Land, and escaping with him is another prisoner who doesn't have a white face, and his name is Asneeze. Remember that Morgan Freeman's character in the Costner film was named Azim. Well, Asneeze says he's in prison for jaywalking, and that he wants to escape so he can be reunited with his son, Achoo, and we're off and running down the satire path. So here's a song from the film. Yo, 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 check it out. Prince John and the sheriff, they was running the show. Raising the taxes because they needed the dough. A reign of terror took over the land. They were shaking down the people just to beat the band. I said, hey. Hey. I said, hey. Hey. I said, hey. weren't happy, morale was low. They had no place to turn to, there was nowhere to go. They needed a hero, but no one could be found, cause Robin Hood was out of town. I said, hey, hey. I said, hey, hey. I said, hey. He was put into the slammer by his Arab phone, and in a little while he would be no more. I said, hey, hey. I said, hey, hey. If you like this sort of humor, you will really like this film. And Achu isn't the only character name that skewers something else. It turns out that the Loxley family has a servant who is blind, and his name is Blinken. As well, one of the merry men is named Little John, so all good. Another merry man is named Will Scarlet O'Hara. And for him, tomorrow is always another day. And for the first time ever in a film, Robin Hood loses the archery competition. Except he doesn't, because... Well, just have a listen. Well done, Robin of Loxley. still has a shot. But he hit the very center of the bullseye. Schmuck! Wait and watch, sire. Trouble, trouble! I'm lost. I'm lost. 
And I'm not supposed to lose. Let me see the spade. Other funny bits in this film, at the beginning we see the prisoners treated to all manner of menu options by the dungeon's maitre d. In a wedding scene, the abbot starts speaking in the New Latin, which is Pig Latin. And King Richard, played here by noted Shakespearean and Star Trek Captain Patrick Stewart, punishes his brother by renaming all of the toilets in the kingdom after him, saying that from hereafter they will be called Johns. Now, in the late 1990s, it was certainly time for new adventures, and that's what we got in the form of a TV series on the American TNT network. This was the New Adventures of Robin Hood. It ran for four seasons in all, two on TNT, and then a further two in syndication. This series, like the BBC series a decade earlier, had magical elements. In fact, this show had the look and feel of the kind of fantasy action fair that you might see readily in Hercules and Xena. Knights have magic armor, Robin has a golden arrow that is magical, and some characters really are witches and warlocks. We also see strange monsters and even gods and goddesses. As well, we see artifacts. Merlin's scepter makes an appearance, and an evil sorcerer uses it to raise an army of the dead, so we have zombies rearing their ugly heads as well. In fact, Merlin himself and even King Arthur make an appearance in a late series episode titled Return to Camelot. We even have an appearance from Elvis, courtesy of a time machine. The most well-known member of the cast was Christopher Lee, who played Olwen, a wizard who is mentor to Robin. And you'll remember that Christopher Lee was Saruman in the recent Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films. A new Robin Hood series began in 2006. This was titled Robin Hood, and it starred Jonas Armstrong. Now this was an updated version in tone, if not in look and feel. We're still in Sherwood Forest, and the main antagonists are still the Sheriff of Nottingham and Guy of Gisborne, but the language has been updated for the 21st century, and so have the sensibilities. You definitely get a modern feel from this series, but it's not too much of a good thing. So who is Robin Hood in this one? Well, he's Robin of Loxley, and he's the Earl of Huntington, so the writers are having it both ways. Robin has been off on crusade with King Richard in the Holy Land, and here's where the twists start to come because Robin in this one has a manservant named Much. Robin and Much return from the Holy Land after five years of fighting at the side of King Richard and find things very much different, and so they go into hiding in the forest. Also on hand in the forest, eventually, are the usual suspects, Little John, Will Scarlet, Alan Adale, who is not a minstrel here, but a con man. We also have a guy named Roy, who manages not to dodge an attack early on in the first series, and so was replaced by a Saracen. And so this is a nod to the 1980s show, which featured the Saracen swordsman Nazir, 
You'll remember that the Kevin Costner film featured a Moor named Azim. Well, in this series, we go one step further and make the Saracen a female character named Jack. Now, these are not merry men, not the most because one of them is a woman, but they're not called the merry men either. In fact, we don't have verbal reference to the merry men at all. They are called the outlaws. The series is in color, obviously, and so we can see the color of the clothes that Robin and the outlaws are wearing, and it is not green. They're not men, or women, in tights, either. The clothes, in fact, appear to be quite modern at times. In some scenes, Marion wears what looks to be a sweater, and Guy of Gisborne's getup often resembles a duster, a kind of jacket. This series turned on its head the common portrayal of Guy of Gisborne. He is no fop or buffoon. He has no bluster. Instead, he has a quiet confidence and thinks he is in the right. And he is played with brooding intensity by Richard Armitage, whom we saw most recently as Thorin in the Hobbit films. We have the whole love triangle thing going on between Robin and Marion and Guy, and the presence of a Guy having presence makes it all the more watchable. In fact, you kind of wonder after a while why Marion is sticking with Robin, because Guy can offer her money, security, and a guaranteed future, and she genuinely seems to like him as well as Robin. This Guy of Gisborne really is a sympathetic character, made even more so in the third season when he is the victim of one of the sheriff's schemes and actually teams up with Robin to regain his standing. The sheriff is a bit of a nutcase. He has it in for King Richard and hires a bunch of thugs known as the Black Knights to take out the king, even to the extent of traveling to the Holy Land to assassinate him. Along with our updated Guy of Gisborne, we have an updated Marion, played with gusto by Lucy Griffiths. And Marion here is not referred to as maid, ever. She is very much her own woman. She has her own opinions, and she's not afraid to voice them. She keeps stringing Guy along with vague promises of a wedding and a happily ever after, while at the same time she's trying to keep her standing in the community, while also convincing Robin that she is the one for him. All of this is to say that we have a very modern Marion here, she is so modern, in fact, that she gets her own alter ego. We meet a character named the Night Watchman, who is an outlaw righting wrongs while Robin is away. She is handy with the weapons needed to protect the people she is trying to protect, and to protect her own identity. To reveal the ultimate fate of the Night Watchman would be revealing a secret. It's one of the wonderful surprises of this series. Overall, you can find a lot to like about this series. The sets are convincing, the acting is first-rate, we see some different plots from what we've seen before, and that is a good thing. Riding the crest of the BBC Robin Hood wave was the Sci-Fi Network with the 2009 TV movie Beyond Sherwood Forest. Now, This was more of a throwback to the new adventures of Robin Hood and, by extension, to Hercules and Xena, in this one, Robin fights a dragon. That's not even the most fantastic part of the story. 
No, that dragon is the sunshine familiar of a female vampire druid. What an odd combination. We have a few other twists on the story as well. It is Robin and Marion who have the quarterstaff fight while Little John watches, and Robin and Marion turn out to be childhood friends. The truly original part comes when Robin and Little John and Will Scarlet and Friar Tuck go to the place named in the title of the film, so beyond Sherwood Forest, and they end up going on a quest for the Tree of Life, fighting off bats and wolves along the way. The whole thing has a bit of a computer game feel about it. Russell Crowe playing Robin Hood in a Ridley Scott film with Kate Blanchett as Marianne? Love the premise. Actually, you'd think that Ridley Scott would have jumped on the Robin Hood bandwagon before 2010, but he didn't much like the story. In fact, he was once quoted as saying that his favorite on-screen version was the Mel Brooks film Robin Hood Men in Tights. But the studios offered him a bunch of money and first right of refusal, and he signed on. Now, the film was originally titled Nottingham, and Russell Crowe had originally signed on to play the sheriff as a good guy and Oscar winner Christian Bale was going to play Robin Hood as a bad guy. Oh, I would have loved to see in that film. But for obvious reasons, that casting got scotched and the story was rewritten as what we now have, with the title also changed to reflect the change in main character. Russell Crowe plays an archer in the King's Army fighting in the Holy Land, and the archer's name is Robin Longstride. Robin finds himself tired enough of fighting far from home to tell King Richard exactly what he thinks of the king and his crusade, and Robin ends up in the stocks, along with his fellow soldiers Little John, Will Scarlet, and Alida Dale. These four end up making their way back to England after discovering a plot to assassinate the king, and the plot is led by an English knight named Godfrey. Now that is the second of the twists here. Godfrey doesn't get a mention in other stories. And playing Marion with aplomb and vigor is Oscar winner Kate Blanchett. She is having none of this Robin Hood as hero business. He really has to earn her trust. The other famous twist in this film is that Richard is portrayed as a gold digger and John more of a sympathetic character. Director Ridley Scott was on record as saying that he thought that John had gotten a bad rap through the years. Still, John ends up a victim of his own devices as the aforementioned evil knight Godfrey ends up leading a French invasion onto English soil. Well, Ridley Scott knows his history, especially the part in which the last successful invasion of England was in 1066, so we see Robin and his men, along with a whole lot of other Englishmen on the beach at the end of the film, trying to repulse a French attack. Do they succeed? I'm not telling. Should you watch this film? Of course. It's a good bit of history, as far as the background events go. The cinematography is stunning, a hallmark of Ridley Scott films. The guy knows how to film a battle scene as well. Two other items of note here, Star Trek The Next Generation and Doctor Who. So let's have a brief look at those. As we know, Worf was a mainstay of both Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The actor who played Worf the Klingon was Michael Dorn, and his deep voice and intimidating presence made his character seem very much the warrior that others of his race were. 
And in the episode Cupid from the fourth of seven seasons of TNG, Worf gets one of the best lines in all of Star Trek TVdom. The title of the episode starts with a capital letter Q, and that refers to one of the Enterprise crew's main antagonists, the omnipotent being Q, played with glee and meddlesome panache by John Delancey. Our beloved Captain Jean-Luc Picard was played by Shakespearean stage veteran Patrick Stewart, as we know. So how better to meddle in the Enterprise crew's lives if you're Q, than to send them all back in time to the time of Robin Hood and make them characters from the story. So Captain Picard is Robin Hood, and his lady love interest, Vash, is Maid Marian. Now, Picard might be happy enough to play along as Robin Hood because he's the hero. But not all of his crew are so happy to be designated for this kind of assignment. Is this Tagus 3? I doubt there are many oak trees on Tagus. No, I think this is supposed to be Earth. Somewhere around about the 12th century. And this is England, or to be more precise, Sherwood Forest, at least Q's recreation of it. That would explain these costumes. Quite right, number one. Or should I say, John Little. Well, if he's Little John, that makes you... I know. Robin Hood. Sir. I protest, I am not a merry man. On the contrary, Lieutenant Worf, your clothing identifies you with the character of Will Scarlet, just as Geordie's mandolin identifies him as Alan Adale. And you, Mr. Data, bear a striking resemblance to Friar Tuck. I will not play the fool for Q's amusement. You might remember, you might remember in that episode as well that Geordie is playing a lute because he's the Alan Adale character who always plays a harp. Well, Worf cannot abide that either because he grabs the loot and smashes it against a tree. Then, of course, he says, sorry. More recently, in the 8th series of Doctor Who, so in 2014, the 12th Doctor and his companion, Clara Oswald, meet Robin Hood and his men, and the Sheriff and Marion, and hilarity ensues. The writers play some of the more famous elements of the story for laughs. We see Robin shoot an arrow through the sheriff's arrow. The sheriff then turns right around and does the same thing. It is then that we discover that the sheriff's knights are robots. The underlying message of this episode is a meditation on what is real and what is legend. The doctor refuses to believe that Robin was a real person, and Clara sets out to convince him otherwise. The robots element is a bonus, a reminder that we're on a sci-fi show here. The story of Robin Hood extends well beyond stories that follow the facts and the legends. As we've seen already, the story is malleable. You can shape it to fit lots of scenarios. And comic books began to feature Robin Hood in the first half of the 20th century. Robin Hood and Company appeared in newspapers in 1935 and in comic book form in 1941. At the same time, Robin and his crew featured in the well-known comic series Classics Illustrated. Several publishers cashed in on the popularity of a 1950s TV show. Some of these were more traditional, like Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Others made waves by putting Robin into difficulty against wild beasts and even wilder human villains. 
As our female characters got more and more print and screen time, they began to feature more in the comics. A late 80s series was called Robin of Sherwood. In that series, Robin was spelled with a Y, and so it was a woman, and she was the daughter of Robin and Marion. In a sense, as with the books, comics featuring Robin Hood have not really stopped. In fact, the story of Robin Hood has not stopped being told, and retold, and revamped, and retold. It's a story that endures whether all of Robin's men are merry or not. Well, that's it for this week for Treks in Sci-Fi. Thanks again to Rico for giving me this opportunity, and thanks to all of you for listening. This is Dave White, signing off.